Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hello to everybody listening. This is the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter. He is the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he is going to be introducing the subject and the guest of our show today. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm well, Nate. Thank you. It's uh, always a pleasure to, to join you on these things. Our guest today is Lyndon Hall. He's a senior manager with Iron Spear Cybersecurity Advisors. He's going to be talking to us about starting from zero, uh, specifically uh, starting up security programs at, well, let's call them sites with a, a low level of security maturity. Let's listen in to Lyndon. Today's topic is starting from zero. What, what's that mean? Where's that come from? Well, it comes from an experience I've had in my career. Um, I guess maybe it's a personality thing or something else, but uh, I've, I'm the kind of person who gets thrown into the fire. Um, I go into environments that tend to be a very low maturity level and correct those environments. Um, and I've seen a number of cases like this where you enter into an environment that has little or no cybersecurity program and the cybersecurity maturity is extremely low. Okay. Um, so... You know, the industrial security space is a very big space. What what industries are we talking about? What what uh, you know? What's most of your experience here? Most of my experience has been in oil and gas and other unregulated industries or semi-regulated. I mean, there are some regulations for oil and gas, um, but uh, they're not always strictly adhered to. Uh, so when you're talking about gas plants, uh, to a lesser extent, pipelines. Pipelines tend to be in pretty good shape, but uh, gas plants, oil and gas, conventional oil and gas. Even some of the uh, oil sands operations in uh, in northern Canada. So Lyndon talked about industries. Um, the examples that he's going to be using, you know, I've I've heard the recording before. His you know his his commentary. He's going to be using examples in the uh, natural gas plant, uh, you know, natural gas preprocessing industry uh, a fair bit through his, his presentation here, through his, his commentary. Um, and so I wanted to, to give people a bit of background uh, on what these things are, if you've never seen one before. These are, you know, fairly large plants. They're, you know, by, by my standards, you know, they're, you know, as, half as big as the neighborhood that I live in. It's a, you know, they're fairly large facilities. And they sit between the natural gas fields and the natural gas pipeline. So when you're about to inject the natural gas into one of the big, uh, you know, international or interstate pipelines, you have to clean up the gas because what comes out of the ground is very different from what's in the pipeline. What's in the pipeline is almost pure methane, you know, 100.0%, as close as you can get to that. What comes out of the ground has got some moisture in it. It might have some, um, some, you know, uh, hydrocarbon liquids like natural gasoline or you know other uh, liquid hydrocarbons, not gases, not methane. It might have some nasties in it like poisonous hydrogen sulfide that has to be scrubbed out because what goes into the pipeline has to be almost 100% methane. Everything else gets taken out of it. And this is the, the facility that does that. So you're dealing at, typically with fairly warm or hot natural gas. You have to keep it hot to... because. Uh, technical reasons in the chemistry if it's if it's if it cools off too much you wind up with crystallization going on and that messes up flows through the pipeline so you're dealing with hot hydrocarbons so this is a, a sensitive environment you know anything leaks and you've got a problem so these people care enormously about safety they care enormously about or they're starting to care enormously about security uh, and you know this is the the context it's sitting between the field and the pipeline let me ask you, um, other than just general chaos doers, um, when we're talking about security here, um, who are the possible threats? Who might be coming in and wanting to to make something out of a, a natural gas processing plant? That's a good question. Um, you know, there's the usual random hackers who don't know any better. But if we're talking about... Uh, you know, strategic threats. If we're talking about nation-state actors, um, 
natural gas tends to be vital to uh, power generation in the modern era. A lot of coal plants are being shut down and replaced by natural gas plants. Um, the uh, you know there are environmental terrorists who uh, want to make a point about the dangers of X, Y, and Z, and so they go and you know uh, break into pipelines. They cause leaks. Uh, you know, if you cause leaks, now you can point the finger and say, oh, you know, the, the, the gas company is bad. So I'm guessing you have all of these actors that have access to grind of one sort or another. It, it may be a, a, you know, a nation state uh, interested in impairing uh, all sorts of operations in a nation. It might be, uh, you know, eco-terrorists. It might be something else. So the, the short answer is uh, that, that's a long way of saying I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Then let's hear what Lyndon has to say about it. So a lot of oil and gas in, you know, in your, your, your zero scenarios. Can you give us an example? I mean, you, you don't have to give us, a, a, you know, names of sites or real sites. You can make something up if you want. But what's typical? When you, when you come into these, one of these sites that, that's at very low maturity, what do you find? What, you know, what are you faced with? I'll give you a bit of a run through of a scenario, what it's like when you drive up to a site like this. Um, the first, first of all, you'll notice that the physical security controls are very low. It'd be easy to either skirt underneath the fence or jump it. Um, and uh, cameras that are visible, uh, there may be cameras, but it doesn't matter because the operators aren't watching them anyway. Um, and at least in one site, we were able to pick the lock with, I was able to pick the lock with nothing more than a Bic pen. Um, just walk in and, you know, stop at the gate and see if anyone comes to stop me. And of course, no one does because no one's looking at the cameras. Uh, from there, you can enter the, you know, enter the building and there's your typical two or three operators uh, sitting around and watching processes, um, you know they're doing a pretty, they're doing a very good job of running the plant and keeping things operational from a technical perspective. In this case, it was a. I'm using a specific example here, which was a gas plant. Uh, of course, they do gas processing, um, a lot of uh, sour gas processing, uh, and shipping gas off to a local terminal for transportation. But they, uh, so when you walk into this environment, it's it's just a little bit, you get the feeling that things are a little bit different. First, um, when you're looking at the wiring closets and, and those sorts of things, there's nothing labeled. Um, things are a bit of a mess. When you start talking to the uh, control systems technicians, um, and as soon as you gain their trust, they're very forthright about the problems they have and the issues they have. And uh, in many cases, in several cases, I've found things like PLCs that are sitting directly on the internet or port forwarded through a micro. You can get directly to them uh, through a micro hard modem that's uh, had web access port forwarded to the uh, to the controller. Um, at least in one case, that PLC was put actually put there by an electrical regulator because uh, there was a cogen on site, um, and. You know, it's a little bit surprising when you hear that a regulator is doing something like that. They're the ones that have made the error. But, uh, you know, these are the these are the kinds of issues you see at sites like this. Um, and so at this point, we're not talking about advanced technology. We're not talking about, uh, you know, how to make this, you know, how to look for advanced persistent threats or how to stop foreign nation states. We're, we're just trying to, you know, you look at security problems like this and you understand the place is probably under constant attack and it if somebody was dedicated enough, they could shut it down at any second. Um, and uh, another thing I'd like to point out is there's, there's a real lack of separation at sites of this, uh, or network segregation between IT and ICS, uh, between the control systems and the business network. Uh, there may be a firewall in place, but the rules haven't been looked at in years. Uh, occasionally you come across firewall rule sets where, you know, there's the fourth rule says permit any, any, with the comment next to it, of course, temp 2012. Um, and you're not, you're not really accomplishing anything with that firewall at that point. It's acting as a router, and it's, you're in the same security zone as the business. I have to admit that when Lyndon was describing the, the plants that he's walking into, I was sort of picturing Homer Simpson at a big control board just asleep in his chair. Is that does that register with your experience visiting similar plants like this? Um no, no not really. It's it's um <laughs> it's quite the image. But no, uh, you know, Lyndon said, look, the the operators inside the plant are very focused on 
uh, doing what the plant does, purifying natural gas. They're very good at purifying natural gas. What he faulted them for was physical security. And, you know, what you have to remember about these sites, you know, what I didn't mention in my introduction is that these gas plants are out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I, uh, I grew up in the countryside. There was a gas plant close to our place. It was, you know, 20 miles away. And between us and them was basically nothing. So, you know, you put these gas plants out close to natural gas fields and close to pipelines, which run everywhere, not close to cities. So, you know, in terms of physical security, it's probably just complacency. I mean, if there's only three pickup trucks who drive by the plant, who don't actually come in and work there every day, you know, how worried are you about watching the monitors? I take your point, Andrew, but uh, what I'm curious about is whether they're actually wrong. I mean, if my house were 20 minutes away from civilization, I too would probably forget to, to lock my doors. True. But, um, you know, when you're when you want to when you want to come up to speed on a cybersecurity program, physical security is essential. You know, if the the, the bad guys can saunter in, uh, touch a piece of equipment, and leave, you're in trouble. You can you know leave a laptop behind, connected to the network, giving you a Wi-Fi access point. You, there's all sorts of nasties you can do if you can touch the system. So cybersecurity starts with physical security. Physical security is in my experience, generally part of any cybersecurity assessment, there's got to be a basic level of physical security to uh, to prevent tampering, basically. And what does that basic level look like typically? Because I could imagine that you know you stick you stick a, a guard in the in the front gate, and he might fall asleep after a little while, based on uh, the image I have now of where these processing plants tend to be. Well, it's it's fairly simple. It's uh, you know it's a fence. Um, there's a, uh, a closed fence with a buzzer. If you drive up, you can't get in. If you walk up, you can't get in. If you want to get in, you got to press the buzzer. The fence physically has to open to let you in. It's, you know, it's a bit of a nuisance, uh, because you got shift change happening three times a day. Uh, but it's, it's the basics. You don't even need a guard there, but you do need, uh, people on the inside of the facility to be able to, you know, bring up a video screen, recognize the person at the gate and either open the gate or say, who are you and why are you buzzing? You know, it, it might mean, you know, during, uh, during the day having a guard there, but not, you know, not on the weekend, not 24 by seven, the operators can serve that function when, you know, nine days out of 10, nobody visits. Uh, but, you know, it, it is a bit of an, of an investment as well, but it's, it's the basics. PLCs on the internet, this is, uh, this is a problem. Um, so let me ask, when, when one of these sites brings you in, uh, you said the technicians, uh, you know, have concerns. When they bring you in, what, what are your marching orders? What problem do, does a site like this think they're solving? Um, well, typically what it is, it's, uh, it's head office that's sending me in or sending us in at Iron Spear um, to have a look at the environment. Um, everyone is a little bit concerned about ICS or, or OT these days because of what they read in the news, and the executives are equally concerned. And uh, they they worry that they're not getting correct information out of their plants, of course, which is where they're, and this is the core operations of the company. Without their plants, so nobody's making any money. The organization uh, ceases to ceases a need to exist without the plants running um and and so they're curious they want to know what the true state of cybersecurity is in 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 the organization and specifically within ics and, and normally they've been fed uh some information um partial information and and they think everything's okay but it's really not um and so it's when we go in we give them a bit of an eye-opener uh, with the results that we find. So clarify for me, the the uh, you're saying the initial engagement tends to be more an assessment than a corrective action? Yes, definitely. And, and one of the neat things about doing, uh, about doing this assessment in the OT environment, though, I mean, it is an assessment, but generally if you tell the, uh, and tell the technicians that you have found a, an issue that needs to be resolved, they'll schedule 
to get it resolved right away on the spot. And that's definitely part of the assessment. Don't hold off in, in giving them a formal report three weeks later. If there's an issue, tell them so right away. And they'll... Uh, and then you can together you can strategize on a solution um but uh, yeah the the core reason uh, for the initial visit is an assessment it's great that that you know these sites have access to some of your 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 best insights while you're there can you give me an example what kind of thing does a site like that tend to say you know i need to fix this right now and remediate on the spot and what kind of things do they tend to put off into a more of a a scheduled remediation well there's there's one thing i can think of right away and this wasn't an oil and gas site i'm not going to mention um specific what specifically which industry it was um but this was a site with very low network segregation very low security segregation between business and it or and um just in in talking with them, I noticed that they had opened up a uh, an Excel spreadsheet with all of their passwords for all of their controllers and other uh, automation equipment. And uh, that Excel spreadsheet was protected by a five-character password. Now, of course, okay, the Excel spreadsheet to begin with, this isn't a great idea for storing passwords there, but we're also not going to fix that today. But what can we fix today? We can fix that five-character password on the spot. And this Excel spreadsheet was also sitting on the IT side of the network. Um, and so if an attacker gets a you know, gets into IT, which is relatively easy for any skilled hacker to do, and then gets a hold of this spreadsheet, which is sitting on a shared drive, they now have all the passwords for the automation environment. And simply going from a five-character password to a 22-character password, which is what they did immediately, uh, changed, uh, you know, you, you now are going from brute forcing that in a matter of minutes to brute forcing it in a matter of years and a very simple change to make to significantly increase security in a, very quickly now of course the long-term recommendation is still to implement a properly a proper password management solution but short term just fixing that one excel file uh, makes a big difference I know this isn't the point, but it does make a, a dummy like me feel good that my password security might be better than that of a major organization. I mean, I can see why why Linden found issue with the kind of low-grade solution that is an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, it it turns out it's more difficult than that. I mean, you know, take the gas plant example. You might have 100 PLCs, programmable logic controllers, little computers directly connected to the physical process in one of these plants. Um you know, he talked about a password management solution. You can put, uh, you know, the classic one is a Windows Active Directory controller into the operations environment, have it manage all the passwords for all the, all the Windows boxes, and there tend to be a lot of Windows boxes. But PLCs are not Windows. PLCs generally cannot be connected to an Active Directory controller. You might be able to get uh, a password manager that manages the passwords for uh, some of, the, uh, of your PLCs, all different brands, all different varieties. You might not. It, it's uh, it's trickier than that. What then is the solution? I don't uh, uh, work on site like Lyndon does, but you know my guess is, uh, you know the 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 risk, the specific risk that he called out was, you know the the file exists and is accessible from the IT network because of poor ITOT segregation. Um, you know, to me best practice is that you have to uh, have a different password on every one of these 100 PLCs. You have to change the password every 90 days. The passwords have to be hard to remember. Um, and so best practice to me is, well, um, make a list. I mean, make it in Excel if you want, but make it on a PC that's not connected to anything. Have yourself a, you know, buy yourself a cheap PC who's only, and a printer beside it, whose only job is to update the list of, of password every 90 days go on to it, um, create a new list of password, uh, uh, passwords, print off 15 copies on pieces of paper, delete the list and, you know, turn the machine off. Take these 15 pieces of paper and lock them in, you know, 15 desk drawers of 15 people who work in the plant, who have, have keys, who have you know, legitimate need to, to access the passwords. Now, the physical people at the plant who need to access the passwords have the passwords. They can change every 90 days. You don't have to remember a hundred hard to remember passwords. And they're not accessible to hackers anymore. Somebody logs into the, the IT network is not going to find this spreadsheet. It's on a machine that's been turned off. 
it exists as physical pieces of paper. So this is, you know, this is one way you could handle it. Okay, let's go back to Lyndon. You do this for a living. You do this frequently. I'm guessing you have some kind of methodology. Can you talk about the approach you take when you when you go to one of these sites for the let's talk for the assessment initially? Uh, yes, definitely. I think um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of people make when coming into any organization or any any anything security related is to come in with a checklist and follow it strictly. Um, the checklist is important to make sure that you cover all aspects of what you want to assess. Uh, but it, what's more important is to come in and ask general questions about the environment, about security, explain why you're there, and explain that you're there to ensure the availability of the plant. Now, somewhere between 50 and 90% of security incidents within an OT environment are internal accidental. Um, when you show up uh, at a site like this and you say you're here there to do a cybersecurity assessment, the first thing that everyone's mind goes to is, oh, we're, we're talking about hackers. Um, and if you correct them on that and say, look, we're, we're looking at what would stop the plant from running, uh, what's going to cause a business impact to this environment, whether it's a power supply on a server failing, uh, a hard drive failing, uh, fiber being cut uh, on site, um, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, those are the issues that we're looking at. Uh, Given that, of course, availability is king within the OT environment, um, those are the types of issues that tend to cause shutdowns at plants. And we're also worried about external ta attackers, of course, and hackers and foreign nation states and all that. Uh, but to start with, uh, we're looking at the basics to keep the plant operational. Now, there's the answer to my earlier question that I guess all of those types of attackers that we'd mentioned before do exist, and you do have to account for all possibilities. But even more so, security doesn't really have to start with a hacker. In Lyndon's example, um, it can just be a faulty machine that threatens a shutdown or a safety hazard, a sort of different kind of cybersecurity. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the focus on consequences, starting from consequences, is a, a common theme that I've heard in the last couple of years when people talk about uh, risk assessments and security planning. Um, if I might diverge for just a minute, um, I've got a, a brand new book from the ISA, the uh, International Society of Automation in front of me, called Security PHA Review, PHA being Process Hazard Analysis. So it's consequence-based cybersecurity. Um, so this is a, a a topic that uh, is, you know, top of mind for a lot of people. And I actually, you know, let's go back to Lyndon. I asked him more about that to 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 explore that topic some more uh, in my next question. Sounds like, uh, you know, starting with the basics, starting from zero includes, um, you know, looking at at uh, I don't know fault trees or or uh, you know ways that things can can fail. You know, if smoke rises out of a server. It's the same consequence as if, you know, the server were, you know, infected with ransomware and the hard drive erased. Is this, you know, is, have I got this right? Yes, that's exactly right. It's, a, it's very much a, a fault tree analysis, an informal fault tree analysis. Uh, but I, I have to emphasize the informal fault, the informal part of that. Um, it, you have to let, ask questions and let the guys talk. Uh, let the people at site talk. They will tell you uh, the issues they see. I mean, I've sat down with them for with people for four or five hours before, and then start having a look around at the plant and start finding a, a single server that, if it fails for any reason, uh, including just dirty power knocking out the power supply, uh, the plant has to be going to emergency shutdown within 15 minutes after that one server dies. And they're not going to be able, you know, after a few quite more questions. And, We've quickly figured out we're not going to be able to replace that server uh, for 24 to 48 hours. At that point, you've lost uh, several hundred thousand dollars in revenue. The focus here that, that Lyndon's talking about is a focus on reliability. You know, that's the technical term. You know, it means correct, continuous, efficient operations. And cybersecurity is essential to reliability. And once you know, it, it sounds to me like uh, Lyndon saying once 
you have the trust of the people at the site because they care about reliability and you've you know made it clear that you're all about reliability as well both cybersecurity and otherwise um now you know they become much more cooperative i mean Lyndon didn't say it, but I've heard other people say, uh, you know, the, the, the truism is once you gain the trust of the people at site, if you want to, uh, you know, shortcut uh, a bunch of these, these risk assessment steps and produce, you know, useful results very quickly, go find the, the individual who's worked at the site the longest, the technician with the most gray hair, and ask him or her, you know, how many ways are there for this plant to go down unexpectedly? You know, show me the, you know, the ways to bring that about fastest. These are the, uh, the the pieces of the process that you probably want to protect and remediate first. So, um, you know, it, it, it rings very true with, with uh, you know, feedback I've heard from, from other sources. Let's come back to the question of, of uh, you know, how you folks do things. Um, you've done an assessment. The, uh, the verdict and the recommendations are in. I assume that you come back for a second engagement and help with the remediation. How does that work? Well, to start with, when you're done the draft of the assessment, it needs to go to the folks at plant at the plant first uh, for a number of reasons. First, you're going to make mistakes, and they're going to need to correct what you what you think you found. Uh, even, uh, and this is common with of any assessment, and uh, this also ensures the accuracy and helps with the buy-in in in repairing the issues or remediating the issues that you've found. Uh, Once that's done, uh, you know, and they've provided their review back, and this should be done very quickly, by the way, Uh, no more than two weeks after your initial assessment, you should be delivering that draft report to them so it doesn't fall off their radar. Uh, If you lose their interest, you had you had their interest there for a day or two. If you lose their interest, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult to regain that buy-in. Uh, from there, deliver the report to the executives along with uh, a solution of how to fix these things. And that solution uh, is, a, of course, a series series of recommendations um, and also how to practically implement them. Um, and now the methodology that Iron Spear uses and that uh, myself and a few other people here have come up with based on experience working in other locations and working with some very, very smart people and stealing ideas that we've seen work of course because who doesn't do that is that we've more or less adapted an agile implementation or an agile strategy uh, for implementing this uh, implementing these types of remediations agile is a software development methodology that came out of the 1970s but it's uh, it's very applicable when you're starting from zero um, because there's not much sense in creating this giant project plan um, with all these, you know, all these interrelated components and listing all the dependencies and all the requirements because you know what the requirements are. You have to set the basics. And as you set them, you're going to find more things. Your requirements are going to shift faster than you can possibly imagine. Um, so you start off with what we call or what Agile calls is splitting uh, the recommendations or the remediations into sprints, and what sprints are are one week, one week time frames to implement a specific uh, remediation, and and from there you uh, after I mean so you have you split up all those sprints, you assign um, you assign resources to them and costs, and so that you can relay that to the executives. But you also have to explain to the executives, like, we're dealing with a moving target here. We're going to be plus or minus 25% on this, hopefully minus 25%. Um, but there's going to be a large error, a large, uh, a large, factor, of, a large factor of error in, uh, in remediating these issues because you are dealing with that moving target. Um, but the benefit of this is that it's much, much faster. Instead of spending two months coming up with a perfect plan, you spend that two months implementing an 80% plan, right? And you get to that base level very quickly. Do you think it's smart, Andrew, for a single entity to do both assessment and remediation? I mean, off off the top of my head, I can think of two potential problems with that. The first being uh, potentially conflict of interest, and the second being that you're only getting one perspective on what might be a, a very wide issue. Well, I mean, both 
both concerns are legitimate. Let me deal with the second one first. Um, you know, the the limited perspective. In my experience, um, owners and operators of these industrial sites will tend to bring in different people every year or two to repeat uh, a security assessment. I mean, Lyndon is talking about starting from zero. He's the first one. But once you get into this process, every year or two, you bring in fresh eyes to give you uh, a fresh report. In terms of the conflict of interest, yeah, I mean, technically there is. Uh, if the same people are saying you need to fix this and then set about fixing it, um, technically there's that that possibility. But um, you have to understand, you know, again, we're talking about the, the, the gas plant example. In the oil and gas industry in, in North America, it's my understanding that the industry is uh, is very connected in areas that are not core to the business. So, for example, um, you know, spending tens of millions of dollars exploring for natural gas or exploring for oil, the the results of those very speculative investments are held very close to, to every company's chest. Nobody Nobody else gets to see these. But outside of that sphere, when we're talking about cybersecurity and we're talking about this vendor or that technology, um, these, you know, the, the people in this industry move around between companies every few years. There's a lot of, of migration of talent. There's a lot of connections that are built up between people working in different companies because they used to work together. And so it's very common in these non-core areas like cybersecurity for somebody you know in in one company to say hey um, I'm thinking of using you know this vendor uh, let me call up two of my buddies who've worked with a vendor before and ask them uh, you know what they think of them and if the report comes back very good they might say yeah you do the assessment you do the remediation if I need fresh eyes I'll get fresh eyes the next time you know there is a downside to fresh eyes the first time if you use a different vendor for the assessment than the remediation the first time the remediation people have to come up to speed. There's a learning curve that you pay for. So if you've got a vendor that you trust because you've got good recommendations, well, you know, you can you can take advantage of that knowledge that you've got from the industry about, you know, trustworthy vendors. So it's, uh, you know, it's the risk is, is managed that way is, I guess, the short answer. I did want to add very briefly about Agile. You know, uh, Lyndon talked about Agile being invented in 1970. I ran into it in uh, 2005, so you know maybe I was a laggard. Um, it had to do with software development. In the, the software development world, it's notoriously difficult to predict how long a certain development's going to take. These projects notoriously go over over budget, over schedule. Three years later, they come out, and the world has changed. You've solved the wrong problem. And so the Agile methodology basically says, do something, whether it's implementing cybersecurity measures or writing software, do something so that at the end of one week, you have something that works. And now you can look around and get some experience with what you've got. And to Lyndon's point, learn from that and, uh, you know, think about, am I going to change my goals for the next week? I had this plan, but I expect it to change. And, uh, you know, respond to what you've learned the first week and do things slightly set differently the second week. Repeat this three, four, five times and, and uh, you know, you've got most of your remediation done. You know, the 80% solution, uh, even though what you did is different from what you planned, it's, you know, arguably the, the, the right thing to do. So this is the Agile method in sort of a nutshell. You know, in terms of these one-week sprints... Um, can you talk about uh, what you tend to do first? What you know is is there are there activities that you tend to see more often than not in the first one, two, or three sprints? Yes, there's a few that we would normally do right off the bat if we don't see them. Uh, network segregation uh, between IT and OT or or ICS uh, is very relevant. Uh, if we see, of course, anything sitting on the internet. Like we were talking about controllers on the internet, that's a very big red flag right away. Those need to go, and that's a part of net, proper network segregation. Uh, there's a couple other things that are always very alarming when you see them. One of them is a lack of multi-factor authentication for anybody who's accessing the the OT environment remotely. And the other one is a lack of data and system backups for the environment. Um, a lot can go wrong in an environment if you have backups, you can always get it back. Uh, it might take a while, but you can always get it back. Without backups, 
there's no guarantee. It might take months. So can you give me can you give me a, a couple of examples here? I mean the, the the two that caught my my attention here. First one was take the controllers off the internet. Generally, if something's been put on the internet, it was done for a reason. Um, you know, you mentioned a, a regulator. Presumably, we're talking the regulator needed readings of power usage or something from the the, the plant. These plants tend to be large users of electric power. Um, if you take it off the internet. The purpose, you know, that communication function doesn't work anymore. How do you deal with that? No, I can put in, uh, that's a great question uh, because you're right. Some, I mean, simply pulling a controller or moving a controller although without much thought as to what that controller is doing is not a good idea. Um, you're definitely going to impact something. Um, so longer term, you can put in a plan to move it off the Internet. But short term, you can do something along the lines of putting a firewall in front of it and source IP limiting what can access it uh, or putting in an extra layer of authentication of some kind. But generally the source IP authentication where you put a firewall in front of it and say only the regulator's source IP can reach this controller now. And that's not the best solution, but it'll keep things running in for the next few months until you can properly move that uh, remote access to, you know, through your standard remote access methodology or through a DMZ between that's established between OT and the business. Andrew, a, a firewall to me sounds like a fine idea. It's better than nothing, but is it really going to stop anybody who really wants to get in? That's a good question. So I heard sort of three levels of, uh, three or four levels of protection here. You know, he described the original scenario not as the the PLC is directly connected to the internet. End of story. He talked about a uh, a modem in between, and these modems tend to have firewall functionality built in. He said the difference between the the configuration they found and sort of the first step remediation, what they found was uh, the admin web server on the on the uh, the PLC is port forwarded through the firewall, so it's accessible to anybody on the on the internet who has the password. So now the only protection for that, you know, from dumb password guessing attacks to sophisticated, you know, vulnerability exploit attacks in the web server um, is, you know, that one layer of firewall. Um, he said, the first thing to do is to take that layer of firewall and change the rule to say, now only IP address X can talk to it, not anybody who knows a password, that address only. Okay, that's a first step. Um, he said a second step was to uh, you know do some remote access stuff, some VPN. Say the the only way to connect to it is through a VPN from address X, you know, with uh, a shared key that you know the, the 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 key is is on three laptops at address X and no one else has it. And the uh, you know the 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 next step uh, in in his estimation was uh, to use a DMZ. And a DMZ is a firewall on the top that has all of those features we talked about, the you know, the, the IP address locking, the, the VPN, the, the shared keys. It also has uh, a firewall on the back end so that there's a firewall between the internet and the, 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 the device, and there is a firewall between the device and the rest of the control system so that you know, the device is still internet exposed. It's still more exposed to attack than we want the control system to be. So, you know, you throw the, uh, uh, the initial firewall protects the device. The second layer of firewall protects the control system from a potentially compromised device. So this is, you know, the uh, classic defense in depth. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll plug very briefly, um, you know, I would have liked if he'd uh, thrown the, the concept of a unidirectional gateway in there, you know, that would fit too. It's a kind of perimeter protection, but he didn't. So I'm not going to go there. Uh, but this was the the sort of the, the, the three layers. Uh, even if the PLC is protected from the internet by only one layer of firewall, you've got a second layer of protection and maybe even you know, ultimately some intrusion detection systems, some other more sophisticated security in the DMZ to uh, slow down or prevent propagation of attacks from the, the, the DMZ into the next layer of, of uh, control system that we want to protect. This sounds to me like a, a classically IT type solution to an OT problem, no? 
Well, yeah, DMZs are used a lot in IT. They're absolutely used on the OT side as well. I mean, you look at uh, the classic Purdue model that talks about layers of networks. Um, often people will identify, I mean, there's, you know, the Purdue model has devices on the bottom that are physically connected to the physical process. It has the control system, usually a, a distributed control system or a SCADA system next. And it has the, the, the plant-wide or sort of the shared systems next. And then it's got the IT network. That shared system layer is often called the plant DMZ. It has a firewall on the top. It has a firewall on the bottom. This is this is classic Purdue model style security. Um, you know, DMZs are used heavily in IT. They're also used heavily in OT. You talked about network segmentation. Um, in order to do network segmentation, you know, on in order to do that, you need an understanding of what what equipment talks to other equipment, what equipment needs to talk to other equipment. You can't just throw a firewall in there. You'll, you, you, you risk um, turning off essential communications. Do you have the knowledge at these sites typically of how these things communicate and what's essential and what's not and, and how you can actually segment? Yeah, and that's another great question. So when you're splitting up these sprints, and I may have stated a little bit simplistic to start, um, the first sprint um, or maybe even the first two or three sprints. So the first two, three weeks uh, would involve uh, setting up a monitoring on the network to see what is uh, traversing between IT and OT and um, and then evaluating that traffic to find out what should be traversing between IT and OT and then beginning to set up rules on the firewall um, after that. And so this whole process can, you know, it can take a couple of months to get it right. And it's a couple of months of, of diligent, hard work and making incremental changes to the firewall, not pushing out a massive uh, new firewall policy all at once. If you do that, you're going to break something. And uh, and that's the last thing you want. If you break something during uh, this process, you're going to lose credibility and you're not going to be able to implement any further changes to secure the environment anytime soon. Lyndon's answer there reminds me of our conversation with Rick Kahn and mapping all of the devices at a plant. That's right. Uh, you know, Verve Industrial um, has the technology to enumerate assets. Uh, but in my understanding, their specialty is the assets. It's the assets and the characteristics of the assets. What are the computers? What are the PLCs? What versions? What patch levels? What, uh, you know, software configurations even? Um what uh, we're talking about here is communications characteristics. If we have, you know, a hundred assets on this network and they're all talking to each other and we've decided 50 of the assets are IT assets and really should be behind a firewall and should not be able to connect to the 50 uh, assets that are, are OT assets, that are control system assets. And we put that firewall in and we made a mistake. Now we've blocked uh, essential communications between something on the that we put on the IT side that really should have belonged on the OT side. So my question was, how do you gather that knowledge? And uh, you know, he talked about incremental changes. There's ways to do this. I mean, one technique that that I'd uh, heard of from from people who do this is, um, you know, you put the firewall in with a rule, you know, one single rule that says allow all. And you turn on logging for the rule. So, you know, you quickly insert the firewall between, let's say, two switches. Um, and uh, communications continues, you know, uninterrupted, but you're logging everything. You do this for a week or two weeks. You come back, you analyze the log, and you say, okay, what's talking to each other? We thought that this was IT and that was O2 and, you know, nothing is talking to each other. But it turns out there's two machines on the IT side that uh, are talking through to OT continuously. What are they? Let's figure this out. And you can learn as you go uh, making these these incremental changes. So, um, you know, the and the point of these incremental changes is to avoid a shutdown. But, you know, my next question to, to uh, Lyndon was, you know, what if you can't avoid a shutdown? So uh, let's listen in. By break something, you know, I, I assume you mean trigger a shutdown. How much can you do realistically without scheduling a shutdown? And if I may, 
how often do these kinds of sites shut down? Do they, are there opportunities to do things that require a shutdown? Can you talk about the, the shutdown issue? Yeah, well, and it may I hope it wouldn't. I hope that implementing a firewall between IT and OT would not trigger a shutdown. If it did, uh, it would be a sign that there's something on your IT network that should be on your OT network. Um, if something is that critical uh, that it needs to be available, uh, it should be sitting on the OT side of the firewall. Um, but it. Yes, there is a possibility, of course, when things are segmented this badly, people will just stand things up wherever. They'll put a server anywhere, and if it's working, they'll leave it. They'll, you know, they'll put a controller anywhere, and if it's if it's working, they'll leave it. Um, so, and yes, these kinds of shutdowns can happen. Um, like I mentioned, um, I mean, one site that was that uh, made me laugh, uh, laugh not in a good way, but kind of chuckle to myself is when you know, we're back to that one site where. Um, there was a single server where the plant would go into, have to go out into emergency shutdown within 15 minutes if that server failed. Um, and talking that to that technician, he was like, well, you think this place is bad? You should see this place in town. Um, I rebooted a server there. It went through management of change and everything. And and uh, for some reason, the whole plant went into emergency shutdown. It took eight hours to bring it back, simply because of an approved firewall reboot, or I mean, sorry, server reboot. Um uh, so th- those kinds of things do happen in these environments that are immature, where you're not sure what kind of communication is happening between system components, and that may include communication to uh, to components on the IT side. Unfortunately, uh, if you're running into those, then you need to look at rearchitecting and moving and moving those systems over to OT prior to implementing firewall rules. And if I may. Um in you know these these kind of environments, uh, I'm assuming that some kinds of changes will require a shutdown. Do these plants shut down reasonably routinely? Um, do you have opportunities to make sort of more farther farther reaching changes in in a sprint? You know, uh, located in the middle of a shutdown, or do these things really just run continuously for for years and decades? Uh, unfortunately, some of them do run nearly continuously, uh, but there's always there's always a maintenance period uh, that they have scheduled on site when it's a good time to do changes without uh, sending the plant into shutdown. Of course, because you don't have to. The plant's already shut down. And typically what you see is, um, you know, what we implement is we spend a lot of the sprints that we set up are more planning than anything else. And then when turnaround happens or shutdown at the plant, um, there's a flurry of activity to implement a lot of changes. And that carries with it a certain amount of risk. You don't want to implement too many changes at once. Um, but uh, there's a flurry of activity to uh, implement all these changes to improve security. And uh, with strong backout plans, uh, so you can test with a strong testing and backout plans. So you can test all your changes you've made before the plant is scheduled to come back up. And uh, and then when things everything, everything comes back up, uh, if everything was done right, uh, you'll have a more secure environment and things will be running smoothly. Andrew, maybe you have a stance on the matter. There's that old um, thought experiment about you take a ship, you replace it one board at a time until every board has been replaced. Is it still the same ship? This kind of reminds me of uh, of what Lyndon's talking about here, how you know, when you're making adjustments to a plant, you have to do them in piecemeal and you can have the same plant running over 30 years. Uh, but at the end of a 30 year span, you might be looking at something totally different than before now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's one analogy. I, I'd suggest a different one. Um, it's the old saw, you know, the, uh, the, the mechanic says to the doctor, um, Hey, you know, um, the, the, the stuff I'm working on is just as complicated as the stuff you're working on. You know, why, you know, we're, we're actually quite similar. The doctor looks at him and says, yeah, the difference is that, uh, you know, I'm working on my stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's equivalent to you working on the engine, replacing pieces in the engine while it's still running. Because, you know, the doctor cannot shut down their patient. Um, you know, so, you know what? What I heard Lyndon say is, you know, shutdowns are very important to these industrial sites. Um, you know, they they there's certain things you cannot do 
to the site while it's running the way a doctor does. Um, and so you take advantage of the opportunity. People plan for these shutdowns for a very long period of time. You know, they see the shutdown coming. They're, you know, he talked about flurry of activity. It's all been planned. They know exactly what they're going to do. When that shutdown hits, um, you know, they've got a window of whatever, 10 days where they're going to change stuff. They're going to test stuff. They're going to, if necessary, you know, discover that it's not working and back it out and kick themselves for not having discovered this through their planning process and their pre-shutdown testing process. You know, this is a, a classic difference between IT and OT systems. A lot of the time in IT systems, you can either shut them down for 10 minutes while you reboot everything and the world hardly notices. You know, if it's, I don't know, Facebook and it goes down for 10 minutes, I guess it's big news. But, you know, these Facebook, Google, these, these big uh, internet systems with, you know, literally hundreds of thousands or millions of machines behind him, you can shut down a half million machines at once and reboot them and nobody notices. That's not the case in the industrial space. Um, you know, the, 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 the OT people, they plan long in advance for these shutdowns. They use the opportunity. They're, there's only so much they can accomplish in 10 days. Uh, it, it's a very big deal. Uh, and, and this you know, is a, a classic problem with the space because it delays, you know, it slows down the deployment of things like uh, changes to security posture. So, you know, it's it's an important topic, the, the, the question of how often does the, do these plants shut down and, and uh, you know, how can we take advantage of that, that opportunity for change? So we like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, yes, I mean, this is... This is one methodology that uh, myself and a few other people have started to use and develop, uh, specifically at Iron Spear where I work, but I've also seen it used elsewhere. Um, and if you decide to take this advice and, and implement this and and you find uh, you find that there are areas for improvement or you find, uh, you know, if you want to have discussion about it, uh, then I encourage you to reach out. In addition, I'm I'm going to be writing a master's thesis on this in the next year, and so I'm also looking for additional information as to what works and what doesn't, and that uh, so that we can you know, share this information with the industry to help uh, help some of these smaller sites and some of these immature organizations that are struggling with base levels of OT security. That's great. Thank you, Lyndon. Absolutely. And just a reminder that I am on LinkedIn, uh, so please do reach out, and I'd be happy to talk about any any aspect of this. Thank you. So anyone who wants to get uh, feedback uh, into uh, Lyndon with his uh, his master's thesis coming up, um, he's on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you have any trouble connecting to him on LinkedIn, uh, just reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm you know uh, on the Waterfall website, um, and I'm happy to introduce you. Great. Thanks so much for sitting down with us, Lyndon, and thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Uh, we'll catch you next time, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. We'll see you all next time.